so many beautiful hymns, so many moving lyrics in these hymns that speak of our Savior and His amazing love for us and what He's done for us. I know when we were singing Beulah Land, I, was, I just closed my eyes and I was trying to imagine the most beautiful land, the most beautiful hills and trees and, and, uh, and sights that I could imagine. Just imagine being there in Beulah Land. And it, it, it's so powerful, but I knew in the best that I could imagine that it can't approach to the glory of what God has in store for His people. Uh, the most beautiful things we see in this life on this earth are, are just uh, pointing us to a glory that's yet to be fully revealed to us. I was also struck by this line, moved by this in Salvation O Melodious Song. It says, But may a poor, bewildered soul, sinful and weak as mine, presume to raise a trembling eye to blessings so divine. I feel like that at times, a poor, bewildered soul. And maybe some of you today feel like a poor, bewildered soul. Maybe there's some here struggling under the weight of guilt and sin. And so I'll repeat what was said before, the words of Christ, when He said, Come unto Me. Come unto Christ. It says that it shall come to pass, and in fact it has come to pass, that whosoever shall call, upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. So I have, a, I have a very hopeful message for you. Right now, in these moments as I'm here, I'm a, an ambassador for Christ for you to say on His behalf, be reconciled to God. But I know also that He, by His Spirit, is working in your hearts, that He's been working in your hearts to prepare you for hearing this word. And so I, I exhort you to listen to that call. Listen to the call of God. If, it's, if you've never come to trust in Christ, then trust in Him today. If you've, if you've trusted in Him but wandered from the way, then come back to Him. He stands ready to receive. And if you're beaten down by this world and the, the struggles and the temptations and the, and the weariness, I hope you'll be encouraged today to see the greatness of the calling that Christ has for you and the strength that comes from Him. Before I dive into the sermon today, uh, which is going to start in Ephesians 4, I, I, I just want to leave you before uh, going from here, I want to leave you with a few things as you read the letter to the Ephesians. I hope you'll read it in the coming weeks sometime. You'll sit down and read through this whole letter. It won't take that long. And maybe some of the things that we've seen over this weekend will come to your mind as you're reading. And a few of the things that we won't really have time to get deeply into, but, I, but have been an encouragement to me in reading Ephesians. One is prayer. Uh, if, you, if you need encouragement in your prayer life, encouragement to pray, the motivation to do it, and then also what to pray, what ought, what ought you to be praying for, then the book of Ephesians can give you so much encouragement in that regard. It, 
I think I counted 25 verses of Ephesians are themselves prayer, either in the form of uh, blessing and praising God for what he has done, which is much of what chapter 1 is and how it begins. And then also praying for the people of God. Paul is, uh, on several occasions, speaking about what he prays for the church. That he would pray that they would know the fullness of what God had done for them. His priority in prayer was that the people of God would uh, grow in their knowledge of God. That they would have a full understanding of the love of God. That they would be rooted and grounded in it. So that they would be equipped for their calling in this life. And he prays uh, that they would be strengthened with might, with power by his spirit in the inner man. So be encouraged to pray that for one another. We need the strength of God. We can't do it on our own. We will, we will fall down again and again. We need to be lifted up by the power of God to face the things that lie before us. And then he, toward the end of the book, he asks the Ephesians to pray also for him. That he would have opportunity and boldness and ability to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel. So remember also that. To pray for those that preach the word of God. That they would be enabled to do so. That the word would come with power and demonstration of the Spirit and that Jesus Christ would be glorified in it. So you'll see prayer running throughout and I hope it would be an encouragement to that. you also see him talk about the mystery of Christ and this idea that there are things that have been hid from ages and generations but have now been revealed to us about Christ, about Him coming in the flesh, about him obtaining his victory and, and his purpose to unite the Jews and the Gentiles and all of God's people into one body. And that great mystery, things that were hid, it says, from ages and from generations, but now revealed. And we see the great privilege that we have to have the truth of God revealed to us. And then also there's such encouragement for our relationships with one another for how husband and wife are called to relate to one another, how uh, servants and masters and parents and children. And in all of these things, there's the encouragement to approach our relationships reconstituted on the principles of Christ and what he's done for us. So the husband is called to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And the wife is called to obey her husband as the church to Christ. And parents and children to relate to one another based on the principles of what Christ has done for us. Not based on our human ways and our human understandings which lead to strife and conflict and bitterness, but based on the glory of Christ and what he's done in his church. Well, today I'd like to begin by reading in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll take our text from Ephesians 4, verse 1. 
I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. We have seen a lot about the glory of the calling to which the people of God have been called. And much of the first three chapters lays the foundation of who we are in Jesus Christ and how we have been saved by grace, by the gift of God and the power of God at work in our lives. We call the exceeding greatness of His power to us who believe. The same power, it says, that was wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and He sat Him at the right hand of the Father. That power is at work in us. And because of what He's done, we are now called to walk worthy of the calling wherewith we have been called. That calling consists in being made the people of God, being called the children of God. And now we're called to walk worthy of that. Uh, one image that comes to mind for me is I imagine, this is just, this is in my imagination, this, the scriptures don't describe this scene, but, but you can imagine it. In the time of David, uh, his son Solomon would become king in his place after David was, was gone. And I can imagine David, uh, one time when Solomon was, was young, taking him aside and taking him out and showing him the kingdom and saying, Solomon, you're a prince. You're the son of the king. And one day, one day, you're gonna, I'm going to be gone and you're going to ascend to the throne and you're going to be king. And look at this great people that we reign over. And look at this blessed land that God has given us. And look at the things that we have been trust, entrusted with. The great responsibility that it is to lead this great people who God has set apart for his name. And the great responsibility it is to be king over those people. To judge with righteous judgment. And, and David exhorting Solomon and describing all these things and saying, Solomon, because... You are going to be king over Israel. Now live in accordance with the highness of that calling. And we are also exhorted. We have been called to a great calling, which is nothing less than to live out the very life of Christ in this world on his behalf, as his body, as his people. As we have seen, we have been made one with Christ. And we are one in Him and we have the calling as the church of God to live out the life of Christ in the world. And so we are called to put forth the effort and the intention in our actions and our words to walk worthy of that, that calling. To live up to what we have been called to because of the status that we have. And that's what he calls, I beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Uh, I mentioned that we, we are called to live the life of Christ in this world. We're called, the church is called his body. Remember back in chapter 1, where it said that he was exalted. Chapter 1, verse 21, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, 
not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That was a great psalm that we we read before, Psalm 145, speaking about the kingdom of Christ. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He has dominion and glory and reign over all creation. Unlike all the kings that came before, uh, whether David or Solomon or Hezekiah or, or any other king, their kingdoms, as great as they may have been in their season, they, they only lasted for a time. But the kingdom of Christ, it lasts forever. And he reigns forever and he reigns with perfect judgment and perfect justice and perfect righteousness. And his throne is not just higher than other thrones, but it is far above all other any name that might be named. And then now how he chooses to exercise his authority in the world is through the truth, the proclamation of the truth and through the actions of his people, which are his body. He says his body is the fullness of him that filleth all in all. He's filled us with his fullness. He's come to dwell in us by his spirit and we have the life of Christ in us, and we're called to live like it. I uh, think of the several things in scriptures that are said of Jesus that are also said of his people. You remember Jesus said one time, I am the light of the world. He said, he that, he that uh, followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He said, I am the light of the world. But he also said to his people, he said, you are the light of the world. There's another place, uh, there's a a ancient prophecy going back to the very beginning where God said to the serpent that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. That the seed of the woman would crush the devil's head. And later in the New Testament, It writes to the church, it says to the church, God shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. In the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, it introduces, it says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know Jesus is the only begotten Son. But it also says in John, it says that to as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And so we see again and again there's things that are said of Christ which are said of us. When Jesus confronted Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus as he's he's marching, in in opposition to Christ, throwing Christians in prison, having them put to death, having Stephen stoned. And he's on his way to do it with all of his uh, vigor and enthusiasm, with all of his might. He's attacking the church of Christ, the disciples. We don't know whether Saul of Tarsus, during his life, he ever, ever met Jesus face to face, if he was around when Jesus was crucified. He only shows up later. First, perhaps, I think, at the stoning of Stephen. And he's there, and they're laying the coats 
at his feet. He's giving authority to what's going on. And Jesus appears to him and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus so identifies with his people. We are one with him. And we are his, the working out of his life in the earth. This is a calling that we are called to be diligent to live up to. So let's go on in this passage. With all lowliness of mind, lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There's so much packed into those few verses that we just read. But it begins with an exhortation as, as Paul is going to, in the next chapters, elaborate on what it means to walk worthy of the calling to which we are called. He begins with an appeal to unity of the people of God. And unity begins with a spirit of humility, of lowliness, that we would, as he says in another place, esteem others better than ourselves. That we would uh, have meekness and uh, entrust ourselves to God. And long-suffering, patience with one another, forbearance. You know, we need, if we're going to get along with one another and have unity, we need to put up with one another's flaws and shortcomings and be patient with one another. And if we're struggling to be patient with someone else, remember how often others were patient with us. And in particular, how patient God was with us. Endeavoring, he says, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. And he goes on to describe the oneness that we have. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We've been united together by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've been made part of one body. And we've participated in one baptism. 
and we have been called and we, ha- we share a hope and a faith. And so he encourages us to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. See, these things require effort. And the effort comes from the basis of what God has done in us. We do it in gratitude to Him. We endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He says, we are one body. And then he goes on to describe, to illustrate what it means to be the body of Christ with a picture of a body. He describes a body and how a body, a a human body, it's made up of all different parts. You've got your arms and your fingers and your your eyeballs and your feet and your legs and your heart and your liver. and, And every part of your body is performing a particular function for which it has been made. It has a unique and important purpose. And this is given to us as an illustration of the church and how the church ought to function. And the body is how you carry out your will in the world and interact with the world around you. If you want to give somebody a hug, you do it with your arms. If you want to uh, speak a word of encouragement to somebody, you need your lips, your tongue to express those sound and make those sound waves go from your mind out your mouth and into their ears. If you want to shake somebody's hand, if you want to help somebody change a tire, your mind and your will and your attention uh, sends that message to your body and your body hopefully is able to carry it out faithfully in accordance with the intention you have. And this is like how Christ is now at work living and acting in this world through you, through His people. We are His hands, His fingers, His feet in this world, His arms, and He is the head. He is the head. He is the one to whom we all uh, derive our purpose and our direction, our instructions for what we are to do and how we are to live this out. And His Spirit, His one Spirit, is flowing through all of us, providing the life in each one of us that we are equipped and enabled to fulfill that purpose. So every one of us has a purpose. And he begins uh, talking about the body by speaking about the victory of Christ in terms that would have been used in the time to describe a military victory. When a conquering king would come into an area and he would conquer his enemies and overthrow them and he'd lead his uh, enemies into captivity and then he would celebrate by giving gifts to his generals, to his uh, leading people. He'd, He'd give them treasures and the spoils. Well, the kingdom of Christ, we can compare it to the kingdoms of this world, but it operates differently after a different principle from the kingdoms of this world. Christ came and He conquered. It says He spoiled principalities and powers. He made a show of them openly. He triumphed over them. He led captivity, he led captivity captive and He gave gifts. He ascended and He descended. And now He is ascended up far above the heavens, all heavens, and He is filling all things. That He might fill all things. And now, here's how he does it. Here how he is, is how he is 
uh, reigning his kingdom in this world. It says he gave uh, gifts unto men. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. He begins by speaking about the gifts of, that involve the ministry of the word, the preaching of the truth. The truth is central. Jesus told Pilate, when Pilate asked him, aren't you a king? Are you a king? And he says, for this cause I came into the world. He says that I would speak the truth. All they that are of the truth hear my voice. He was was a king indeed. In fact, he is the king of kings and lord of lords and his power and his reign and the administration of his kingdom is more effective and more just and more powerful, more influential than any king that has ever lived in this world. But his kingdom is not of this world. The ways of his kingdom are not like the kingdoms of this world, which operate by force and by, just by fear and by manipulation and by deception. He reigns by the power of the truth. And his servants follow him willingly, with love, loyally, following his commands because it is true and it is good and it is for our good. And so the first gifts that are spoken of here are not the only gifts that God has given to the church, but they are foundational because they involve the speaking of the truth that the rest of the church would be equipped for the service to which all of us have been called. And so he begins with those foundation stones of the, of the building of God, which are the apostles and the prophets. They are the foundation upon which the church is built. And their uh, teachings, which are the faithful delivery of the teachings of Christ, passed down to us in the scriptures, they form the authority and the foundation of everything else that we do. Not because uh, the men, Peter and, and Paul and John, not because of who they were in their own sakes, but because they were called and chosen by Christ, set aside for the purpose of being those foundation stones, with Jesus Christ himself the chief cornerstone, and because they faithfully passed on his teaching to their disciples, their followers, and down through the generations to us today, and particularly preserved for us in the scriptures and also evangelists and pastors and teachers. And what is their role? What is the gift that is given that they would be, says, for the perfecting of the saints, that the saints would grow up into maturity? I see in this idea of perfecting as taking us from our state of uh, rawness and immaturity, uh, lacking in the knowledge of God, and helping us to grow up in our understanding so that we would more fully understand the truth of Jesus Christ, that we would be more firmly established in it, so that we're not blown around, as it says, by every wind of doctrine, that we don't get swayed by everything we hear in this world that might deceive us from the truth, but that we can be firmly planted and established in the truth for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. For the work of the ministry. For the work, and ministry, it means service. We often use it to describe those 
that preach the word. We call them ministers, or those that shepherd congregations are called ministers. And they're accurately called ministers because they are serving Christ and they're serving the people of God. But the work of the ministry is not just for the preachers and the pastors. The work of the ministry is for all of us. And we're equipped by the work of the preachers and the pastors to be able to perform that ministry so that our service is grounded in the truth. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. To edify, it means to uh, build up, to strengthen, to, uh, to uh, um, encourage, and to firmly establish the church. And that is something that we all if we have the mindset of desiring the kingdom of Christ, of seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness before all else, then we will seek in the words that we say to one another, in the actions that we do, that our goal, our desire, I hope this will be your goal, your motivation, will be that everything that you do, when you see each other on Sundays, when you meet each other throughout the week, the words that you say, how you handle a conflict that comes up, that your goal, your desire, how can I build up the body of Christ? How can I make it stronger? How can I make it more, uh, more harmoniously integrated together so that the church would be encouraged and the life of Jesus Christ would be more fully manifest in the world around us. And he goes on to describe uh, the, the destination to which this is working. God has a purpose in what he's doing. You know, God, God could have saved you. He could have saved you and immediately plucked you out of this world and taken you to heaven to be with him. And that would have, that would have been great for you. That would have been wonderful. Paul said to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But he also said that he recognized for himself that for the people of God, it was better for you that I'm here. And that's, so you're here for a reason. God has put you here for a purpose. Every single one of the members of the church, from the youngest to the oldest, from the, from the, from the, uh, the, the, uh, preacher to the people in the pews, all of us, together, we have a calling of God, a purpose for which you are here. And each of our gifts are not the same, and each of the purpose that we're called for is not the same, but it is all united to one purpose, and it's this, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. If the church is the body of Christ, and we are clearly shown that it is, the church is the body of Christ, then what is the goal, what is the destination for what the church ought to be? That the body of Christ on earth would fully and completely and perfectly live out and represent the life and the purpose and the character of Jesus Christ in this world. And we know we don't perfectly do that. We know we fall so far short of that. But that is what we are called to strive for. And that is what God is doing as He builds up His body in the earth. 
And it's amazing. It's amazing what God is doing through His church, through His people, all throughout this earth. That God, if God desires somebody to hear the Word, He has people all around this world that He can send to them. If God needs somebody to... to if, if God has poor that He wants to feed and send somebody to give them food. Or He, he needs somebody to be comforted somewhere. He can send somebody all over this world at any time, in any place, and He is constantly doing that. And so there is a sense, even though uh, I sometimes imagine, what would have been like if Christ had stayed here on this earth after His resurrection and, and He was with us to this day? And we think in our human understanding that would have been better, except Jesus said that it's better for you that I go away because I'll send the Holy Spirit to you. And he said, you'll do greater works even than I did, because I go away, but I'm sending my Spirit to be in your midst. And the power and the work of Christ in this world is uh, immeasurable and, and, and far beyond what we can understand. And he does it through his people, through his Spirit in his people, and through what, is, what he calls his body. So that is what we're aiming for. That is what this is leading to, is to grow to fully manifest the life of Christ in this world. And, and how do we do that? How are we called to do that? We do that, each of us, by seeking to faithfully fulfill the role for which God has called us to do. To be a faithful member, a body part of the body of Christ. And we're not all the same. Each one of us is different. Each one of us, God has gifted us with different gifts, different talents that he has given us. That, that we, he says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slate of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. We... We grow into Christ by remembering that Christ is the all in all. It is Him to which we are seeking to to live out His life. From whom, he says, the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. So when you think about a, a body, a human body, God has made each part, and, and all of the parts are connected together in one a unified whole. And we are unified like that. And so it says when one part suffers, all suffer. And you know that in the physical manifestation. If you, have, if you, if you're, uh, if you break your arm and it's just throbbing with pain... It's not like you can just in your mind separate that off and think, well, that's just my arm. The rest of me is fine, so I'm, uh, I'm not worried about it. No, you, you feel it in your whole being. It affects your whole being. And so when one person hurts, when one's grieving, we all grieve with that. When one is wandering out of the way, the rest of the church, they feel it. They sympathize with it. They're Im- affected by it. They're, they're hurt by it. And, when, and, and likewise, when, when one of us rejoices, when one of us experiences the, 
the grace and the power of God in a mighty way. And in getting to talk with some of you over this last weekend, I've heard uh, stories, uh, many stories, about God working in a providential or even miraculous way in your lives. And when I hear that, I rejoice. Even if it didn't happen to me directly, I rejoice with you because of the unity that we have in Christ. And so we rejoice together and we grieve together. And so we're called to sorrow with those who sorrow and rejoice with those who rejoice. And it's through the effectual working in the measure of every part. Because God is at work in each member, each member has the Spirit of God at work in you. And through that, you are called to work for the edifying of the rest of the body. And so the body is actually uh, edifying itself, just like our, our human bodies. They, they, we have amazing, fearfully and wonderfully made systems that God has put in us. Our immune system, which the body can work to heal itself from diseases through the mechanisms that God has put in there. And so we are called as a church to live as that body and to honor one another. It says, ye are all the body of Christ and members in particular. Each one of us is, is a member and so value the calling that each and every one of us has. Recognize that you might have a calling that's different from a calling that someone else has. You might have a gift that someone else doesn't have and don't diminish the gifts of others because they're not the same as your own because we need all of it. In uh, Corinthians, Paul uses this analogy and, he's, and he, uh, he gets kind of humorous. He says it would be something like it would be silly if the eye were to say to the foot, I don't need you because you're not an eye. Or the foot would say to the eye, I don't need you because you're not a foot. Well, the foot is very important, and the foot needs to be a foot, and the best foot that it can be, and the eye needs to be an eye, and they are connected together and part of one whole. And so are we in the church. We're part of one whole. And so the, really at the heart of walking worthy of the calling is to recognize that we are unified in Christ, we are one, and to live out that calling. And then... Then there's, he goes on to exhort us to changes of lifestyle and behavior of our actions and our words so that we would uh, repent from living in accordance with the old ways before we were converted and made part of Christ, when we were under the prince of the power of the air, when we were um, walking as children of wrath, when we walked according to the course of this world, what do we serve before? We served the world. We served our own lusts and our own desires. And we served the powers of the devil. But now we are called to put all that off and walk pleasing in God's sight, in his ways. So let's read on. He says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness 
to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. Now that is a very vivid and bleak description of the state of this world, the people of this world, apart from Christ. So don't be, don't be tempted by the, the, the apparent um, uh, pleasures and, and glories that this world has to offer, the riches of this world and, and the temptations of sin and these things that, that at first might have an outward appearance of something desirable, something pleasurable, something shiny and attractive. But this is the reality of what those things lead to. Darkness. Uh, alienated from the life of God. Past feeling, they've given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. He says, but ye have not so learned Christ. Or as he says in Colossians, as ye have received Christ Jesus, so walk ye in him. That uh, analogy of walking, it's, it's talking about the ordinary course of our lives. It's what we do from day to day. If you live back in Paul's time and you wanted to get anywhere, probably most of the time you were walking. It's how you were getting around. It's what you were doing. And so when it speaks about our walk, or when we we ask each other, how is your walk going? We're talking about the normal course of our lives. As you have received Christ, so walk ye in him. May your lifestyle, the way you act and the way you speak and live, may it reflect the truth about what you've received of Jesus Christ. He says, If so be that ye have heard of him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Put off the old man and put on the new man. The old man is, the, is full of the sinful lusts, seeking to seek pleasure, fleshly pleasures. The new man seeks to please God. The old man is lifted up with pride and seeks to honor self and seek reputation and, and to, be, to please man. The new man seeks to please God and honors others and, hum, and is humble and is in harmony with God's purpose and God's plan in this world. Put off the old man, he says, and put on the new man. And remember, this is, this is written to people who he said have been made alive in Christ. This is something that we continually do every day. Put off the old man and put on the new man. Continually strive to put away the old ways of sin and selfishness and put on the new ways of service to God and righteousness. And true holiness. And so then he goes on to give examples. And the examples cover everything about our lives. How we speak. He says, put away lying. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Notice that as he encourages this change in how we live and how we speak, he'll often say what to put away and what to pick up. What to put off and what to put on. You know, it, it, like you could, you could think of an analogy of clothing. If you were, to, if you were covered in, in muddy, dirty, smelly clothing because you'd been working out, uh, 
you know, feeding and cleaning your, your horse stalls all day, and you come in, you would want to take off those dirty, muddy, gross clothes, and after that, you would want to put on clean, attractive, pleasant, good-smelling clothing, and you would, you would change. You would put something off, and you would take something up, and that's what we need to do. It's not enough to just say, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, stop doing this, even though there's a lot of things we need to stop doing, but what do we replace it with? It says, put away lying and replace it with truth. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down on your wrath, neither give place to the devil. Let him that steal stole, steal no, that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. This verse 28, it's one of my favorite illustrations of this. Because he's talking about somebody who is a thief. Say, you were a thief, you used to steal. Well, stop stealing. Stop taking from other people. That's, that itself is a good exhortation. If you're stealing, stop stealing. If you're extorting people, stop extorting people. If you're taking advantage of others for your own gain, stop doing that. But it's not just stop doing that. It's, you, you need to not just modify your behavior, but sh- transform your entire outlook. Why did he steal? He stole because he cared more about himself and pleasing himself than he cared about what was going on with other people. He says, let him that steals, steal no more. But instead, let him work with his hands so that he might have something to give to the poor. It's a transformation, and that's, that's how all of these things are. And we can't go into all of these examples today, but, but our communication, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but instead, that which is to the use of edifying. Are you someone who finds that a lot of what you say brings trouble to others, offends others, um, saddens others, brings strife and difficulty and bitterness? Well, stop with the corrupt communication. Instead, speak in a way that would build others up. You are empowered to do this. Christ has given you everything you need for for life and godliness. So, So stop speaking that way and start speaking in a way that is edifying and that ministers grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Our change in our spirit, even the forgiveness we have, it all flows back from what God has done for us. You have a hard time forgiving somebody? I understand that. But think of what Christ has forgiven you. Think about how you have been forgiven. And this continues on through the next chapter. He also exhorts them not to be deceived in uh, verse 6 of chapter 5. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. He's talking about sexual immorality and uncleanness and covetousness and idolatry. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived uh, if somebody comes along and says, you can continue doing those things and you're, you're, you're not going to, uh, you're going to 
not have to worry about the wrath and the judgment of God coming upon you. He says, don't be deceived. Because of these things comes the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were darkness, but now ye are light. And then later in chapter 5, he exhorts us to be a people filled with the Spirit of God. A people filled with praise. Uh, Verse 18, he says, And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, someone who is drunk with wine, we we will sometimes use the phrase, they are under the influence. They're under the influence of that wine. He says, be not drunk with wine. Don't be be, uh, driven by, influenced by uh, wine, by drunkenness, but instead... Be filled with something else. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Spirit of God that it would would be the driving force in your life. And then he tells us practically ways that we can encourage the, the filling of the Spirit in our lives. He says, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, speaking and making melody in your heart, singing, and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Gratitude towards God ought to fill everything about our thoughts and how we speak. We ought to overflow with the gratitude of God, practice the gratitude of God in our songs, in our words, that we would in everything give thanks even in, even in our struggles at times, we can give thanks. We have a great calling in Jesus Christ to be the body of Christ and to live out the life of Christ in this world, to represent Him to the world around us. Remember all that He's done for us, how He came and willingly gave His life on the cross to, to deliver us from our sins so that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins and God would not count our sin and our guilt against us, but would make us the righteousness of God in Christ. And and in light of all that he's done for us, what a privilege it is for us to be able to strive to faithfully represent the life of Christ in this world, to live out his life amongst one another and before the world around us. What a great calling that we have. What a great calling that we have. And, and uh, so, so I'd encourage you again. I'd exhort you again as, as, as uh, the, spe- the one who in this moment has an opportunity to speak to you God's word. That you would trust in him. Trust in Christ. Call upon him. Whosoever, it says, shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And may the power of his might be what strengthens you in the inner man that equips you and equips us as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to serve him in this world and live forth the life of Christ.